0: Welcome everyone. This is episode 28 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Jason Strasser. Now, Jason, this is the first number three. Uh, I've had a a couple of other number twos, but you're my first number three. And this came from groundswell popular demand.
1: I'm honored. I love going on this podcast and um, it was certainly a crazy week. And I feel like I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on on Twitter right now that uh, a lot of debate that needs to happen. And um, I'm excited to be here.
0: Now, you are a very mild-mannered guy, the m- most mild-mannered in, in the poker Twitter sphere. And I've noticed you're getting a little bit edgy because people are getting a lot of stuff wrong and you're eager to correct them. Is is my read correct?
1: I I don't know if edgy is the word, but like, I, for me, it's like, there's a lot of people that, are, that, know, that should know better, that are spouting off stuff they don't know anything about. And, um, you know, big name Twitter personalities that are just just staying, saying stuff that's just like factually incorrect. And I didn't come on this podcast to get in any beef with anyone else on Twitter, but it just bothered me that there's a whole bunch of stuff out there, like people talking about market structure, people talking about hedge funds, people talking about short sellers, people talking about all this stuff. And just, they're just wrong. I don't know how to say it. And conspiracy theories are everywhere. And I just feel like, um, yeah, I just feel like the level of information that's total garbage is just really high right now. That's my feeling. So maybe edgy is fair, but like I'm, I don't really care. Not many things set me off, but like you're right. Like there was some stuff out there that really made me annoyed. And it, it wasn't like attacking me, but it was just wrong. And I feel like it needs to get cleared up.
0: So the all-in podcast, which the poker world loves, justifiably, it's a great podcast, we have to say. And and Chomap is a fun personality. He kind of has a tough role now because he's benefiting from engaged with financial He's conflicted. Markets, yes, yeah, he conf- should be conflicted. Yeah. He's conflicted. So it should probably be known that he's conflicted. Um, but it's a good podcast. However... I know less than you and I noted a lot of things that they got terribly wrong in that podcast. So I'm sure you noted many more things that they got terribly wrong. Maybe you could jump into it a little bit. Just just factual things that they got wrong. Like for instance, yeah, so like, like, they're a little yeah, bit hard short. on the on on the idea of selling of order flow, which is not great. Like there's been plenty written about it, but it's not as bad as as they they think it is.
1: First of all, Chamoth's company that he's taking public, sells order flow. That was the funny thing to me about that whole thing. It's that SoFi sells order flow. So that struck me as strange that that would be like, whatever Robin is doing, SoFi is doing with the same trades. So that was weird, but backing up a second. Yeah, like here's how you should think about it. There's, there's like, as a customer who's trading, you have two options if you're retail. You can go with a broker that's not selling your order flow and that's routing them to exchanges you know, interactive brokers, that's I think either all or majority what happens on interactive brokers, right? You put it in an order, interactive brokers routes it to the market, they try to get you the best price. They're not getting paid for order flow, they're just routing your order for you. The other choice you have as a consumer is payment for order flow. And it's naive to think that SoFi or Robinhood are just gonna have this gigantic stock trading business and not have any ways of making money, right? So back away a second, like if anyone's offering you free anything in any world, you should think about like what's actually happening and as you said there are pros and there are cons of payment for order flow but i believe chamath called it front running or something like that and that's not what's happening with payment for order flow you know payment for order flow is very simple uh this you know citadels virtues is the world whatever they pay for the right to route the order to where they're waiting and you know the stock market and the option market are very fragmented so they're waiting on the perfect exchange where they can take the other side of it and have the best economics because every exchange has different rebate rules and things like that. So the high, you know, the the citadels of the world are paying for that right to route the order flow to where they're waiting. That's not front running. That might, that might be good. That might be bad. There's a lot written on both sides of it. You know, the, the sort of like the reason why it might be good is that, you know, they can, they can price things very tight relative to the markets because they're not worried about smart flow when they're dealing with the, retail traders so they price things like tighter than you would like i personally would love to be able to trade on robinhood and get those executions over and over and over again if i could i would but they don't let people like me on robinhood because they don't want people to have bigger orders going through there because they're giving very good prices on small tiny orders on the other hand if you don't like what's going on on robinhood you can just open up an interactive broker's account you can pay commission and you can trade those are the two options as a consumer and i just felt like whatever was happening on that pod characterizing payment for order flow as some front-running evil thing just was kind of ridiculous, in my opinion.
0: So, um, maybe we should just jump straight into what started the whole debate, like the the GameStop blow-up, um, upside blow-up, whatever. Um, so, we need to get into the idea of... of margin accounts and changes in margin and settlement procedures and all of that. Um, If you want to, we can lead into some of the history of short squeezes and um, how basically this past week was just what we've observed for the past year and a half, really, even pre-COVID with the most speculative stocks running the fastest. Um, taken to a level of absurdity?
1: You know, I look at what's happened, you know, when people started trading in March, they all bought just like bought airlines and cruise ships and whatever. And they bought all like the stuff that they thought would rebound from COVID and retail did extremely well. Like retail was the smartest investor in March. You know, they by and large were doing all the right things while hedge funds were taking down risk and things like that. So that to me is is one thing. Then Then the next step was, the solar EV, uh, you know, Neo, like the Chinese auto electric vehicle Tesla, um, solar. Part of that was Biden winning, but there was just massive momentum and all the sort of Kathy Wood type names. You know, all the gene editing and um, all the stuff that where where the valuations are very open-ended question. Because if you're, you know, stocks of the future per se, right? So like it's kind of hard to argue about valuation for these stocks that are some people believe are just the future of the world. So like it's kind of hard to. Put normal valuations on those. That was like the second phase. Whatever has been happening recently is just different, right? This is a, yeah, they're speculative stocks, but like, you know, six months ago, Robinhood people weren't looking for heavily shorted companies to run up. That was not what was happening, right? This was just different. This was, uh, you know, a very well orchestrated, you know, short squeeze like we've seen in the past, right? You know, We've seen Tilray go nuts. We've seen Volkswagen go nuts. Like there's Piggly Wiggly, people are putting funny tweets about this old short squeeze from the 20s on Twitter. Um, You know, this was a old school short squeeze, which was not what retail in my opinion has been doing. This is like a shift in their behavior. And I think the GameStop thing uh, reminds me of like when you play poker and like an amateur player like makes a really good move. (laughs) That's what GameStop is. Like GameStop was a perfect situation. It was a $1 billion market cap, insanely high short interest, also a name that like people recognize, and like there's some like familiarity to this crowd that was buying the stock. It was like the perfect storm. And the truth is, is that whatever the Wall Street Bets crew did in GameStop, it worked out extremely well. You know, they whatever they even if even if GameStop collapses tomorrow. Like I, there's net net going to be a ton of winners because there were a ton of hedge funds and other investors that have covered their stock in the hundred, 300, whatever range. And that money is going to uh, largely, you know, a decent chunk of it. Not all of it. Obviously there's a ton of institutional holders. You know, I think it'd be fun for us to go through the math real quick because how I was going to ask you, how many shares of GameStop do you think are held by this crew? Because I was sort of running through the math, like, there's probably like 5 million accounts on Robinhood that have it, or someone told me there was 60% of Robinhood accounts had at least one share of GME. And I think there's 12 to 13 million Robinhood accounts. So there's only 60, whatever million shares of GME outstanding. So like, I know a lot of people have been putting like the holders on GME. We know a lot of those holders have already sold out and a lot of the whole, and, and we know the short interest has come down. Right. So like, uh short interest when this whole thing started was low 70 millions. And as my prime brokers, well some prime brokers were sending out reports that it's basically high 40s on Thursday and there was more covering on Friday. So call it like maybe, yeah, I think I think I think we really need to think about what the actual holders of GME are right now. But I, I think Robin Hood owns like half. Um so long story short, they've made a ton of money. They've done a great trade. Uh they absolutely squeezed out. Real investors, and um, I don't know what else to say about it. Like it was a very well executed uh, short squeeze.
0: There, so um, just for a listeners' point of view, there there are insane mechanics that go into short selling. If you're interested, there's an old paper that still holds up called "The Market for Borrowing Stock" by Gene devolio It's about a hundred pages, but it goes through all of the mechanics. There are some weird aspects of short selling. One of the weird aspects is that if you start from a position of zero percent short interest and then you have say one percent of say I own one percent of the shares and I all of the sudden put my shares out for borrow and Jason, Jason borrows them to short them he's selling them to a new buyer who now owns the shares just as surely in his own mind as I own the shares. So there's now 101% of the float long and 1% short. And so you get this weird aspect where when you get a very high short interest of say 80%, you actually have 180% of the shares outstanding long and 80% short. It's counterintuitive, but but that's the way it works. And what should never happen is for more than 100% of the shares outstanding to be short because what should happen by the mechanics of the market is that if if we're starting from a position of, say zero short interest, I sell to Jason, or I allow Jason to borrow my shares, he sells them to someone else. when that, when that person has my shares, the broker should know that those shares are on borrow from Jason, and he's not allowed to put those out for borrow. so there's no rehypothecation, there's no in the terms of the um financial crisis it would be like naked short selling selling without a clear borrow. there there is um there should never be a case where the same shares are lent out twice and so there should never be a situation where more than 100 percent of the float is short um this is a situation i don't understand exactly with gamestop but they're there, there yeah, might have so been I, at various think- points more than 100 percent short right
1: yeah here's what i think happens so You go get a short, Brandon's a hedge fund. You go get a short, you want a short GameStop. You go to a bank, you get a locate from a stock loan desk. So Goldman or whoever says here, Brandon, you have a locate. Goldman is not like uniquely identifying that share as the one that you borrowed and sold in the market. They're not like linking and keeping track of that exact share. What Goldman is telling you is I can process this transaction. I can find the share. And if we need to settle this, I feel confident that I could find the shares. It doesn't, so I think what happens in GameStop is a lot of the holders in GameStop were people that were lending out shares. And it was, and the stock loan desk looked at the pool and they didn't see anything that would scare them. I I think it's telling that I haven't lost my locate in GME at all this week. And um, I think that's, that's not just me, that's just street wide. And it's crazy to me, if you look at Tilray or Volkswagen or one of the insane short squeezes, there was no borrow available in those spots. But for whatever reason, when people are looking at the pool, and you have to remember, Robinhood lends out shares. Robinhood takes the shares and lends them out. That's one of their profit centers at Robinhood. So when, when you get heavy retail concentration of stocks, it doesn't necessarily, where, where stuff gets really tight is when you have the Volkswagen Porsche situation, and Porsche owns a ton of Volkswagen and says, I'm not letting that out. Then the borrow goes crazy or Tilray where we have insiders who can't sell or, or, you know, that kind of thing who people who aren't lending out, but retail people owning stocks is actually generally good for the lending ecosystem. So I think part of what's happened in GameStop is even as the shares have gone, first of all, there's been a lot of short covering. I, I was reading online that there hasn't been a lot, you know, at least 40% in my opinion of the shares have been covered so far. But um, I think when stock loans looking at it, they never felt uncomfortable with the amount of shares that were available to be located. So they kept giving locates out, locates out, locates out. Obviously your, your point is correct. Like they shouldn't be giving out locates because if everyone called it at the same time, it, it would just break. But the way the stock loan just would actually work, let's say the locates started to dry up, then they would go to the people that are short and say, hey, you gotta buy this back. And that's kind of what would have happened. If the stock loan people started getting nervous because of the supply and demand situation in the lending world, then, then you would have seen that. This is not what's happened in GameStop. Like, To my knowledge, this has not been like forced buying in where the stock loan desks are saying, hey, you have to buy this now. Um, and like like I said, because of all the covering the last week, like the borrow is not a huge issue right now. I think retail clients are having trouble borrowing it, but I don't think institutional clients are having trouble borrowing it. Um,
0: oh, a random thing that I remember from the, um, the paper, the market for borrowing stock, and I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that this has changed because it's a it's really about the terms and conditions when you when you sign the terms of conditions for robinhood they're pushing you into a margin account and as part of the margin account first of all they're able to wind out your shares and then and they're able to collect the fee from that um second of all um, technically, they own the shares. We'll get into this later. But technically, if they were to to go into some negative equity situation somehow, I don't know how that would be. But the, if they were, then you would, as a brokerage holder, would be a creditor of Rob, Robinhood. Um, as you go
1: as you go deeper and deeper here, you're going to realize that stock loan, like there's a lot of people that are whining about different things on Wall Street being good or bad. Like stock loan is one of it. It is. It is an incredibly let's just say shady area there's a ton of money made in stock loan and it feels wrong (laughs) do you know what i mean like some guy borrowing some guy buying GameStop, and then robin hood lending it out making a huge profit off the lending and not sharing a dollar with the client doesn't that feel wrong and and do you know how many it's
0: it's, well it, it essentially leads to three different types of holders of stock you have you have one person whose view is so optimistic that they're willing to hold it despite getting nothing for lending it out, another person who is a long, who's willing to hold it, but only because they're getting a large borrow fee for right. it out. And another, another set of people who are willing to pay a large borrow fee to short. So it's a, it's a strange equilibrium.
1: It is. I mean, what, one thing to notice, just pro tip, if, if you're ever long a stock on Robinhood, let's just say, and it's hard to borrow, The right move is to sell that stock and then get synthetically long with options. And what I'm not saying is buy calls, but if you buy calls, sell, put the same strike, that's a long position. That's going to look exactly the same as it's basically you're, you're you're entering into a forward contract at the expiration when you do that. And the economics of the borrow will be priced in the option market. So like, GameStop's hard because not many people have capital for 100 shares. I bet the average amount of shares people hold is two. So it doesn't really apply to GameStop. But just in general, if you're an investor and you think your broker's screwing you on stock loan, you can always turn to the option market and create synthetically the same position with the economics of the hard-to-borrow price and the option. So basically buying at a discount to where the stock is today. So I think that for a lot of people who are sick of stock loan messing around with them, that's the way you fight it.
0: Well, as of the early 2000s, it was such a strange world that, that the, if your stock was special, if it had a high interest rate um, for borrow, and you happen to be long it in your brokerage account, you could actually get the money from lending out the stock if you called your broker and asked for it. But if you didn't- Same call today. Same today.
1: Like interactive brokers, a lot of brokers have ways of getting that money. I'm not, that, I don't have, I'm not familiar with Robinhood or others, but- I do know for a fact there's just tens of millions of dollars a day that is wasted like this. Actually much more than that, I would guess. Where people who are long a stock is hard to borrow are not getting paid for it. It's just like the most, it's way too common, sad.
0: So I'd like to go into two things. One is settlement, like the, uh sort of two-day standard settlement and how Mm -hmm. this possibly led to Robinhood's issues that caused the stop in trading. Um, The the second part is um, what you think of the fact that obviously Robinhood restricted trading on GameStop on Thursday, that was very unpopular. Um, But then on Friday afternoon, they restricted trading on a lot of different securities. And then this weekend, I haven't been on Twitter much this weekend, so I haven't seen comments on this, but I find it very interesting for Monday. Um, Not just Robinhood, but all of the major discount brokerages took a basket of about 45 of the most traffic stocks, and a lot of this basket had a margin requirement of 30 to 70 percent, and they went ahead and upped it to 100 percent. And one guess is that maybe regulators or or the clearinghouse is pushing that on them, and I'm I'm assuming that they're going to be um, quite rapidly putting it into effect on Monday, which could lead to disorder in the markets. So a lot of times, if a, if one broker ch- changes. Say a biotech stock from from 50% margin to 100% margin. They'll give you a few days to work it out. But I'm imagining that this is coming from somewhere where they're tr- they're trying to straighten the ship in short order. And I think this is going to be insanely unpopular. I mean, people are going to log into their uh, brokerage accounts on Monday. They're going to have a big margin call, and they're going to and they're going to call up and say, "What happened? I was fine on Friday." And the broker is going to say, "Well, we just changed all of these margin requirements to 100%. You need to." You need to bring your account in speed by the end of the day.
1: Yeah, first of all, it's sad what happened. Like, whatever happened behind the scenes the last few days, it, it should this should never happen. Like, we can both agree that like we should be in a fair market where if someone wants to buy a stock for whatever price, they should be able to do it. And it's it's sad what happened. Um, Robinhood I think put out a blog post this weekend about this what happened and. Largely saying the same things that you're saying, which is that the DTCC, the clearing corp, basically raised margin requirements for them. I have no doubt that really happened because I don't think it's the first time this kind of thing has happened. Like you pointed out before, like there's a long history of stocks being extremely volatile and the clearing corporation raising margin requirements. I don't think there's ever been like this many retail brokers in one stock in one platform. Um, I think Robinhood, it's kind of on them honestly because i do think they with better planning could have avoided this you know for me like why weren't new accounts shut down like in the past week or something like like clearly there was way too much activity at their cl- platform and the dtcc was not comfortable with the counterparty risk but there are things that robinhood could have done to reduce activity on their platform in advance it just feels to me like why why are you able to open up a new account right now on robinhood if you know the issue is too much activity right Every time there's a trade, there's T plus two settlement. DTCC wants to, is worried, like GameStop opens at $10 tomorrow. Okay, fine. How much r- money did Robinhood lose? Like, did, Were they able to like avoid a big situation where they tried a margin call and lost a bunch of money, right? So if they lost a bunch of money and they can't settle the trades, there's a, there's a, it could be very destabilizing or bad for the DTCC. So I get why the DTCC is raising margin requirements. On the same time, like, I feel like there are things Robinhood could have done obviously could have like closed new accounts earlier. They also could have had like, you know, it's tough. I think Robinhood's an $11 billion company. And I, and I, and I heard that they needed like multiple, multiple billions to to clear all these trades that have been happening in the last week. So if they need multiple, multiple billions to clear all these trades, it's not like VC money is the money they need because VCs like, that's not the money they need. What they need is like a financial lender who understands the risk at Robinhood to to write them, to loan them money on a short term to get through this, and I feel like they could have had that all set up. There's ways they could have had access to liquidity. I know they borrowed money from a consortium of banks. I don't think it was quite enough. And I and I, I think you saw Interactive Brokers this weekend come out say that activity should be normal on Monday. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say about Robinhood. Like, I feel like they let down their customers.
0: Well, the one thing that seems a little bit unique and 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 worrisome for Monday is that. In a typical situation where you have margin requirements raised, I I can just say anecdotally that it often causes the price to go down, like for the obvious reason, like there's forced liquidation, if there's there's forced liquidation for a major broker. But um, what sort of should happen in financial theory terms is that the stock is trading at approximately the right price. And... So if you have, let's just say major brokerages raise the discount to, or raise the margin requirement to a hundred percent, all those customers sell as they get their margin in order, but then yeah, everyone. I'm not is familiar with what,
1: I'm not familiar with what Robinhood margin situation was in GME this week and where it is now. I thought it was, had, I thought it had been very high for not just like Friday. I I, I thought they raised it earlier the week, but I'm not, I'm not positive on that.
0: But what's new is that all the discount brokers took a list of the of the forty five right. most traffic stocks and and, and made those hundred yeah. percent. That's that's what's new. Yeah. And so I the, the concern would be that typically in such a situation, sort of the retail accounts would sell to get their margin in order and then other places recognizing the value would buy and the price would maybe go down a little bit. But in, in these cases, as you say, yeah. A lot of the longs are held in these accounts. And so as they liquidate who's taking you right. and buying, it's, it's hard to say. I,
1: I, think, I think one thing we should differentiate is that there's a lot of these stocks shooting up now, but there's kind of a big difference between a lot of them. Um, GME is in the bucket with Volkswagen and Tilray uh, in many ways, like more of a classic short squeeze. But not everything is going on quite like that. Um, And I I thought it was helpful the way we think about it is we sort of group these pumps or squeezes into categories Um, You know, there's another stock squeezing right now KOSS. It's like it was a micro cap company And now the stock's gone up like 200 times or something like that Um, there's no short interest in this so we have like if you think about a stock that's being pumped that doesn't have short interest To me that's uh dogecoin, you know, that's like that's that's what's happening here. It's like a crypto style pump, you know where basically like, you know, a whole mob floods into some altcoin or floods into some tiny stock with no short interest. And I feel like people who are familiar with crypto and familiar with trading have seen like how that works. You know, the first person in makes money, you know, you want to, you want to try to sell before the last, you know, you know, it's just a game of like, basically net zero. You know, the crowd is going to be overall flat at the end of the day, if the stock returns to previous levels, there's no Thing like GameStop, where GameStop, there's people that are covering at way higher prices, and that's like money going to the other side. Whereas like a, a Dogecoin pump, there's just it's a net zero game at the end of the day when it goes back to one dollar or one cent or wherever Dogecoin goes. Um, the third one is even worse than Dogecoin for pumpers, and that's where there's real sellers when the things go up. So look at AMC, right? AMC went up. What happened? Company sold shares. Silver Lake took their convert, converted into shares, sold shares. A bunch of people that owned equity because AMC has been diluting a lot of equity in the past year. A lot of those sellers came out and sold. So this is like the opposite of GameStop, right? AMC pumps and what happens? Like people show up and sell. Nokia the same way. Nokia, we saw it was one of these names that, you know, Dave Portnoy was pushing and other people were pushing. What happened? The stock goes up, what happens? All these European fund managers that have probably been waiting to sell Nokia for the last thousand years. They, they finally get their, their move up. And all you saw is money being sold. So I feel like GME is a situation where there's money going into the pockets of the w- Wall Street bet crew. They made money. AMC Nokia is the opposite. They are literally, it's a wealth transfer from Wall Street Bets to Silver Lake, from Wall Street Bets to European fund managers. That's what we've seen here. And then you have the ones in the middle where the only people involved are the pumpers, KOSS, for example. That's just like a crypto altcoin. And what what I wanted to communicate here is that I feel like what's happened is GameStop worked perfectly. And people are trying to you see silver, people are tweeting about silver. Like, you know, American Airlines went up a crazy amount pre-market and came back. People are people are trying to apply the same technique to that worked in GameStop to other places where it's not a good, not a good poker strategy or not a good hand to play, if, if you get my what I'm saying. And I really hope that the people at Wash understand that they hit the jackpot with GME, and who knows how that's gonna end. But just because it worked in GME doesn't mean it's gonna work everywhere else. And some of the other spots I've seen them try, to me it looks like going all in blind every hand basically.
0: Well, okay, maybe you could talk a bit about the the option writing ecosystem because one one thing that has happened with the Wall Street bets crew is that they they do like punning options. I mean, this is a crew that yep. gambles their faces off; like they're they're really going. I can verify and, that. And they like options. And my take on it, you you give me you correct me. Um, basically. I think one of the things that we learned in in March is that the option writing complex is basically an efficient complex that has a lot of capital, but there are some capital constraints. So in March, they were still willing to write options, but the The VIG, the expected loss, which is always, it's always incalculable, right? It's, you never know what it is, but if, but basically the, it seemed like the VIG was very high if you did want to buy options at that time. And um, when I'm speaking of VIG, obviously if the implied volatility goes up, option prices are going up, but there's, there's sort of another element to it. Maybe you could get into it where um, if the option market maker is feeling capital constrained or they're playing defense a little bit, they're just sort of offering worse prices in general. The whole market is offering worse prices in a way where even after accounting for all of the all of the possible variables, the, the person who's buying the option is still getting a slightly worse deal than they otherwise would have. They're paying a little bit more VIG um, or... Another way to think about it relative to the replicating portfolio, they're paying like um, they're paying a little bit extra. And it, it seems like we went through this period in March where the option market making complex was liquidity constrained. And for various reasons over the course of the year, it never fully recovered. And so we find ourselves at a spot now where People are fired up about options. Retail people are fired up about options. But it might be one of the worst times ever for retail to buy options. I don't know. I don't know.
1: If yeah, well, let's, let's back up. So 2020 was the best year probably ever for these guys that market make options. Um, Citadel Securities, which is, again, there's a Citadel hedge fund, Citadel Securities. We can talk about it later if you want. But there's Citadel Securities, according to Bloomberg, made $6.7 billion last year. This is a huge number for them. Uh, I'm sure the other market makers, you know, Susquehanna is not public, but, but like by every, but, but what you're hearing it's, if you knew what you were doing in that space, last year was a great year because there was just tons of activity, tons of volume. Um, I think what's happening, especially in the last week, I think the Wall Street Bets crew needs to understand that what they're doing is not that sophisticated. It's not hard. It's not hard to see like what's going on. And when these market makers, they're adjusting right now. So when they see the crowd pouring into these different options the pricing is much 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 higher than normal i don't think it's like what you said a liquidity thing i don't i think these guys are sitting on tons of cash and are totally fine like they're they're ready to they're ready to go right now like they've had a, a banner 12 months and like i think they're i don't think i don't think that ecosystem has been i mean i get no idea maybe there's some crazy loss in gamestop or something like that but the ecosystem is very very healthy right now and I think which all that's happening is one that they see this flow of volume come in. you know, and the, It's always like the weekly option, like a way out of the money call. They see that flow starting to happen. They just put the prices up and up and up and up. And the buyer just keeps buying regardless of the price. So whenever you have someone buying, you have a lot of buying right now that's just not price sensitive at all. And in options, that can be very, very, very uh, costly. And I think if you look at the amount of money lost on options outside of GameStop in the past three Trading days, um, it would be some staggering number because people are buying these options, but they're not—they're—they're they're not looking what implied vol is and the market makers know that. And so, I, in the last week, I've never seen option prices like as high as I've seen in this last week. I mean, I, I and I trade crazy biotechs and crazy—I've never seen anything like it before. And so, but the but the Wall Street bets crew keeps buying them. And like I said before, it's going to end. It's probably going to end badly.
0: When, when the Wall Street bets crew, let's just say that next week silver is kind of a tough example because global.
1: Yeah, you think you think they're going to cause a global (laughs) short? I mean, like here's it. You have to think about them as like maybe like a ten billion dollar hedge fund in aggregate, somewhere between a ten and like a thirty billion dollar hedge fund in aggregate but one that uses leverage. So maybe they have like 50 to hundred billion of buying power or something like that. You, you and I both know in silver, the, the, the kind of market we're talking about here, you know, there are, there are a lot of people that would love to sell their silver up 15% from here. Let's just put it mildly. Right. And um, just like in, just like in Nokia and just like in AMC. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say other than, it's they just they just hit gin and then they're trying it in other ways and I'm skeptical.
0: So let's let's just take the AMC example. Although as you say, it's a hard example because you have all this supply waiting in the wings. Okay. Right. They they decide to make an orchestrated buy essentially on AMC, mm-hmm. and, and they they get together and basically crowdsource a lot of option buying in amc and as as you said now the option market makers they're reading wall street bets they're prepared for these things so it's hard to catch them by surprise but they do catch them a bit by surprise and option market makers are just taken aback by exactly how much volume is coming in every time someone from wall street bets is taking a big order the market maker is buying the replicating portfolio it's basically bidding up the stock and then if they really get caught off guard by the volumes, they've written all of these contracts to the early people on Wall Street Bets and then they're shocked at how much more money comes later. And now there's a bit of a gamma squeeze because they have to, as the Delta's increasing, they're having to buy more stock and it's just bid, 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 bid. Um, but what should happen aside from the fact that you have the supply waiting on the wings from the sophisticated investors that hold a lot and love to see the price increase and sell, what should also happen is that the this this sort of gamma squeeze is not a one way street and it should be that as we get to expiration assuming these are like over overly levered um speculators they can't really take delivery uh, come expiration whenever and most of the time it's short dated so let's just say it's last friday or this coming friday and now it should kind of go the other way because they have to cash in their winning tickets, right? And that should be.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, if the stock starts going down, the, the people that sold the options have to sell stock also because they bought stock to hedge against the calls. And then the stock goes down. Those calls are not in the money. They have to get rid of their hedge. So, this, yeah, the gamut squeeze thing is real. It's like a real effect. We saw it with like Tesla. We talked about it, I think, last time I was here. Um, it's a real, real effect. But as you pointed out, it goes both ways. And I think the, 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 the key point here is that the options are being priced for the kinds of moves we're seeing now, you know, like it's different when the options are being priced like in a more normal type of environment, but these options are being priced very extreme right now. You know, stock moves up 50%. It's not, it's not surprising any one of these option sellers right now, you know, the, they're being priced to move that kind of stuff. Like these options, these stocks are being moved, priced to be move, moving 5%, 50% a day or whatever. So like the market is now pricing options to a point, where they're very comfortable with the moves that are happening, largely speaking, and the Wall Street best crew keeps buying them. Tesla, Tesla implied. Look at the options people were buying in Tesla—the one-week stuff and whatever back in the day. These options are thirty times more expensive. You know, we're talking about like orders of magnitude different, and they still are buying them. And so, yeah, like I said, I just think that big picture. Um, I hope the people that made a bunch of money in GameStop don't, don't give it, don't, don't expect it to work in silver, for example. And it <laughs> might, it might, I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen in silver, but like, I mean, there's a big difference between GameStop and silver to put it mildly.
0: Yeah. And so when you get this reversal of the, of the gamma squeeze, like I'm basically, as people are cashing out their winning tickets on expiration day. Right. Y- We've seen examples where, despite the expectation that as the speculators were going to be sort of cashing out their winning tickets and the stock might decline, you in fact have this group just gambling so furiously that they basically just take all the winnings and pile it into the next expiration so so they don't go down. Right. That is like, how do you even explain that? Like, that's just...
1: Well, that's just what's happening. I mean, that's happening. Yeah, you're right. Like, you know, the, the, them selling their winners puts the stock down, them buying more lotto tickets pushes the stock up. So a lot of times you expect to see a lot of people I was reading, you know, they thought Friday GME would be down because of the effect. And of course, you saw not that happen. Um, yeah, I mean, they're just two forces pulling in different ways. If this crew continues just to buy out of the money options, it will be very supportive for stocks. And that's just how it works. Now if they stop buying or they give up, you know, different.
0: However, based on what you're saying, like in terms of the financial ecosystem for them to shrink in size does not require these things going down because they're overpaying for option. It just requires like a a little bit of choppy moves for a month or so.
1: Yeah. I mean, not even a month or so. Like I, I mean, I think, I think the psychology of GameStop is very interesting. You know, it's like uh it's not really like, like, you know, you're an economics guy. Like it's not really like people are buying stocks, not for reasons that it's going to go up. Like they're buying stocks. Cause, you know, I, I think a lot of people are buying GME cause they want to be part of the cause or, you know, it's a, it's a cultural thing almost. Right. This, this is not like rooted in like the stuff that you taught your kids at, at Harvard. Like this is, this is something different. Um, I think when you're trying to think about GME, you should think about, is more of a human psychology thing. When is this crew going to get bored? That's, that's what the, that's what the answer is, right? When is, when is the steam going to run out? Like, is it, the thing is like if you buy GME today and you just go away for a year, you know, it's very unlikely that, um, yeah, just the history of these kinds of things, it's very unlikely that it's anywhere near the current stock price. Um, I think the thing about GME also is we haven't heard from the company yet. Right. So like, that's the big other thing that's just looming out there is like, in theory, right, economics-wise, if some company sees a stock go up like this, they, they should be a
0: job registration already. We don't know. I mean, they might. Yeah, we don't
1: know anything. But all I'm saying is, like, just like there's a lot of things that can happen. Um, but I think trying to rationalize the people buying GME, it's it's not like a normal situation. It's much more. You should have a psychiatrist on here if you want to really dive into this because it's more about like the mob mentality versus um, because we saw the data from Citadel. They put it out last week about. Uh, retail trading and GME, and on Monday they were net buyers, and Tuesday they were sellers, and then of course when the freeze happened, they were small net sellers. But last week the retail was, according to Citadel, was a net neutral. They weren't net buying or net selling, um, which I think is remarkable because these people have a lot of heart. <laughs> you know, like you think when a stock goes up this this much, like I, I'm impressed by. I'm impressed. I mean it's, it's, it's not many times in history do you see people buy a stock for 30 and they go to 300 and, and the group is just holding, you know, the diamond hands thing seems like that's what's happening. It's, it's actually very impressive. And I, and I, I think the future of the stock, especially in the near term is going to come down to the sort of collective psychology of of that group and whatever the company does is the other variable.
0: In terms of the people being squeezed, um, obviously everyone like in your position sort of taking positions or here, they would love to know the status of the people being squeezed and it's I always think it's funny because people it seems like they trust what they hear about it but if you're being squeezed you're always going to lie about it and say that you're already out <laughs> so like yeah because you always yeah, to think the squeeze is over so of course you're always going to lie about it and spread misinformation and say that you're already out but so, so I, I felt like people were quick to say, all right, they're already they're already out. Like on Monday, yeah, or whatever, yeah I'm sure, of course they're already out. Sure, I'm sure. So, but but like, do well, you? Think, but backing you, up, what do you do? You have a grasp on the reality of like where? Well,
1: well here's what happens, right? So, okay, game stops at four dollars, and people are short, right? This is last year. They're short, and now it's three hundred fifty dollars, right? No matter how small you size that position. If it's a one percent position, right? You're you're out of business. So, um, no matter how small you side that position, there's just pain buying, as you would know. But what happens in this situation is there's a big difference between some of that short of the socket ten dollars and some of that short of the socket two or three hundred dollars, right? Because what happens in these situations is that the short base gets diverse, right? It was relatively concentrated before the squeeze, in, from what I'm hearing. And now it's going to be very short. And the guy shorting it at 200 is thinking, well, okay, this is crazy. It might go to 500, it might go to 1,000. But I eventually, I just think, you know, $30 billion valuation for like a pretty much struggling brick and mortar company that's not has negative cash flow um, or negative EBITDA, I should say. Uh, I think both. Um, it doesn't make any sense. So I do think what you've seen, what you see in these not just GME, just any short squeeze is that the short base changes, right? There's a big difference between. 50 million shares short from, from someone that's shorter at $4. And when it all turns over and a bunch of people are short around this price, you know, positions are obviously sized appropriately. Uh, Risks are understood. Um, so I do think that the sort of squeeziness of, of GME, it can obviously still squeeze. But uh, I do think that, you know, some dynamics are in play, which normally in this spot calm it down, which is why when you see other shorts like Tilray go up, you see the same thing. You see the short base get more diverse and that sort of takes the panic buyer away from the equation more.
0: Or the, the non-decision maker, the, the, uh, Right. The, exactly. The forced buyer. Right. Right.
1: And I do think it's important month end. Um, a lot of investors like hedge funds give a month end update to investors. And the number one question that you're going to get if you're a hedge fund and you're down this month is what's your GME exposure? What's left, you know? So I do think that part of what happened on Friday was people shoring up <laughs> that exposure. They're going to say, Hey, listen, we lost 10%, but our GME is like manageable. And that's what they would need to say. Like, it's very hard to send out that email. Like, Hey, we lost 20%. And yeah, we have this gigantic GME position. It's 30% of our, of our fund. You know, that's just very hard to write. So I do think that was in play on Friday.
0: Well, man, this was a, this was a beautiful summary. I really, appreciate All right. it. I think, I think what I'd like to do is um, give it to you for review tonight, and we'll get it out in the morning so it doesn't become – I'll
1: try my best. I'll try my best. Yeah, get to me as soon as you can. All right, my man. All right. Thanks, Brandon. Talk to you later.